genre. Hi everybody, welcome to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Minute, the daily podcast where we are talking about the 1990 and 1991 live-action Ninja Turtle movies, one minute at a time. And the reason I said 1990 and 1991 today is because this is not a regular episode, this is a very special episode with a very... So special! Very special guest... guest? (laughs) Guest. Um, I'll introduce our host first, I'm Scott, you guys know Chris. Yep. And Rachel. Hello! And Adam. Hey there. And I'm very sure that all of you are very familiar with our extra Ninja Turtle co-host today, Mr. John Duprez. Hey, hello. Hello, Mr. John Duprez. Dupre, by the way. Oh, yeah. Dupre. I'm so silent. sorry. Oh, no. I've been saying it wrong for, for years. A <laughs> <laughs> hundred and some odd episodes. Either, so. We've said it wrong every time. Um, well, welcome all the way from the UK. How's the weather okay, today? Yes. Um, Dreadful. You've got freezing rain today, uh, which causes black ice on the road. Uh, mm. Just bought the Christmas tree. All right. So um, we're, we're, that's the way we cope with this here. <laughs> a little bit we of cheer. We buy large fir trees and stick them inside. Yeah, we do the same. It's, uh... Mine's fake. <laughs> Mine is aluminum. So? My tree aluminum. is fake. Yep. Aluminum. Mm. Yep. <laughs> so, Mr. Dupre, uh, for those of you who uh-huh. aren't familiar, number one, why are you listening to our show? Uh, number two, he's the fantastic composer of all three live-action turtle films from the 1990s. So all of that incredible music that we've been talking about for a hundred-some-odd episodes now, this is the guy that made it all. This is the dude that composed it. And as a musician and amateur composer myself, I am geeking out possibly harder than I have the entire run of our show so far. Yeah, I think so. I'm interested. If you discuss one minute at a time, do you often end up in the middle of a phrase? And All the yep. time. Does the music sort of suddenly get cut off and you, you think, uh, that will be next time? You know, the, the resolution of this chord will be in the next episode. Uh, that does happen a lot, uh, but you'd be surprised at how often the minutes actually end at really appropriate spots in not only the music, ah, but also the, the visual or the dialogue. It does, it, it, it lines up really nicely every well, once in a while. I, I, either, either it's lining up really nicely or the human brain has a way of sort of making a narrative where there isn't one. Well, yeah. people don't really care that much about music and if it gets cut off, then why should they care? So. <laughs> I, I, I think people consciously don't care. I think subconsciously that uh, more people when you internalize take... the music than, than they, they even realize. Yeah, if you go on YouTube and you watch like some scenes from movies with the, uh, the soundtrack taken away, it's, it, it's really eerie and awful. Yeah, you don't know what yeah, you've got until it's, it's, it's fairly gone. easy to let your iPod run, and that kind of just corrects it fairly easily. <laughs> much I suppose that's true, but I, I will say... We've been saying uh, all last season when we did the first movie that the the music in this film really elevates it to a whole other level, in, in the 1990 film specifically. We love that movie. It's, it's a much better movie than it ever really gets credit for, and the music is phenomenal the whole way through. You do so many really interesting things and get different sort of genres mixed in there, different instruments and arrangements, that it really, like, it, it elevates the film like a whole other level. Um, and we well, were that's like, oh, very gosh. kind of you to say. That's very kind of you to say. Um, I, 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 I wasn't um, aware of your podcast so, so until you emailed me, so I'm, I'm now aware of it. And I did, um, 
I did uh, listen to your, the episode where you um, where you interview one of the creators. Oh, um, Kevin Eastman, yes. Eastman. And I noticed the whole 40 minutes music wasn't mentioned at all. <laughs> oh, but you see, now you got to go back to minute one and count how many oh. times we mentioned the music up until that point. <laughs> we actually we interviewed the director, Steve Barron, and we, we did talk about music a lot. Um, and I'll, I'll sort of get to that a little later because I have some questions. I was going to say, I'm interested. I've, I've never met Steve, and, I know, I've, uh, and I've never... Um, I didn't meet him at any premieres. We didn't meet, you know, because of course huh. I, I came in, you know, at rather an unfortunate time when they fired him. You know, they 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 got rid of the director and um, ah. tried yeah. to reconstruct the film without him. And so uh, I, I never actually met him, and I've no idea what he. Th I worked with his mother once as um, Zelda huh. Baron. Huh. Uh, she wanted to do a film with a punk group, and she wanted me to nurse the punk group through. Hmm. writing for film, which I did. Um, and it was an interesting prospect. But so, I never met her son, I, and I have no idea what he thinks of the music. So well, what did he think about the music? Okay, I'm, I'm going to put this in a way... It was a while ago. <laughs> so he had originally, from what I remember, had uh, someone who is actually associated with the Sex Pistols as uh, the, his sort of option for scoring the film. Well, um, he had Malcolm McLaren. Uh, yes, um, who was an amazing guy, but I mean, not particularly known as a composer. So um, that was one of the flaws in appointing him. <laughs> and, and I think that sort of the studio, from what I can recall Steve saying, and I, again, I don't remember exactly. I'd have to go back and listen again. But I, I think the studio sort of. Yeah, that interview was last go, Christmas. Yeah, that was a, a year ago now. Um, the studio wanted to go in a different direction with it. Something uh, a little bit more. I don't know if traditional is the word more established. Um, and I think that was around the same time they were having a lot of issues with sort of the violence of the film and, and uh, just some other issues on set. And they, they the went darkness. to you. And he said, I think he said that he didn't really have much of a say in, in choosing the, 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 the composer, that it was more of the studio decision. And yes, that's I, right, yeah. from what I remember, he was complimentary of it, but he did kind of say it's not how I would have done it. No. Uh, it's, uh, I, I think one the, the kind of reason I was brought on was because of Fiscal Wonder. I, I just had my first sort of international hit dun, dun, with Fiscal Wonder. So I was regarded as a safe pair of hands. Ah. And I think that, um, well, I can give you a couple of, uh, 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 of instances. I mean, after it was all over and I'd gone home, because, of course, I wasn't there for the cast and crew screenings or anything like that. I sort of did, did the job across Christmas, actually, across wow. the, more or less at this time of year. Yeah. I had so this sort is kind of, of an anniversary I missed, for you. <laughs> well, yeah, and I had two small sons, and I really missed them madly. And so um, scenes like the bonfire scene, you know, where they're kind of conjuring oh, up man. Splinter, you know, that, that's all from me missing my, bo my two boys at home. And that. so um, <laughs> that's... Uh, but I was so I was like cast in the middle of nowhere for for um, you know in a darkened room for about two months uh, <laughs> to do this and um, uh, when it was all over I got home and I got a hamper from Harrods um, it was from Raymond Chow the the head of Golden Harvest mm -hmm. and um, it was for several reasons I mean because he'd said. Um, Try and keep the losses down to two million dollars. That's what he told me. Uh, <laughs> that was the proof of the people trying to rescue it. 
um, <laughs> and um, and also uh, did better than that. The reason I got the hamper particularly was they got a they got a U certificate for the film, and that was um, they were worried about the violence. And mm. they, they said that my score took the curse off the violence. Ah. Um, <laughs> one of my say... great heroes is Scott Bradley, who did the Tom and Jerry. Uh, cartoons uh, and uh, oh, and uh, in in uh, the Simpsons, you know, itchy and scratchy sort of um, <laughs> it up Tom and Jerry. Well, it is incredibly right. violent, Tom and Jerry. Oh yes, absolutely. Uh, and uh, the Simpsons put their finger on it, but but the music makes it really funny. It makes it sort of comedic and kind of uh, slapstick and ballet. You know, it gives it sort of grace as well. It, it makes so in the big uh, the big fight. You know, when they fall through the roof and they have the uh, what's yeah. called the huge fight. Right. Uh, original title. Uh, you know, I, I I more or less choreographed. The, you know, so that it all happens in time with the music, and therefore it looks kind of it looks very kind of. Balletic and, well, and, and you even and have this jokey. moment in that scene when they're down in the basement where Donatello's getting his head smashed in the piano, and you actually quote Beethoven's fifth on that, the dun-dun-dun-dun, <laughs> which I thought was, I well, had never caught it before you, until we well, watched it. Well, of course, you know, I come to the film after there was no music on it, and so he bangs his head down in time to that, <laughs> when I saw him banging his head, you know, that's, what I thought, that's why I gave it that phrase. That's amazing uh, that just happened to work out like that. That's brilliant. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, did, I scored a film called Private Function where Maggie Smith is playing the piano uh, and, and she wasn't really playing the piano. She just kind of randomly plink, hit plink. the piano in a way that she thought a pianist might do. Um, and I had to go through frame by frame oh and uh, uh, write a piece of music <laughs> that would fit uh, exactly the where her hands lie on it. And so, so like, uh, Even as far uh, as, like, where she is on the keyboard, like... Not even just yeah. when her fingers hit rhythmically, but like sort of the tonal center yeah. of where she's playing also. Oh my well, God. Well, I and mean, she was supposed to be playing Rose of England, a sort of traditional piece. And so I had, and not only that, it then cuts away from her and then it cuts back. So you had to sort of make oh. sure that you're in time when it cut back. You had a bit more license when the camera wasn't on her fingers. But uh, so, but I was used to that. I mean, that's kind of, um, uh, you, you know, the, the, uh, the daily expectation of a film composer. So, um, so. So, but this this one, you know, there was a lot of that kind of action to yeah. uh, to match up. I imagine after that, bash, uh, a head being bashed uh, against the keyboard a couple times is a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> well, I had to ask them to do it ten times. <laughs> oh, well, that's okay. um, yeah, hit that sucker again. So, um, if you don't mind, um, I'd yeah. kind of like to go back and get a little bit of your your sort of backstory and how you came into music and things like that. Being a music teacher, this is kind of my my bread and butter. So he's gonna play this for the kids. <laughs> You're totally gonna well, play I, this I, in class. I mean, I, 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 you, you uh, let me just give you a burst of this before I uh, let's have a look. You can edit this down, I suppose. <laughs> um, uh, is your is your company last decade? Is I'm sorry. Is your publishing company last decade? Oh, music? mine mine personally is called Wrong Decade. For, for Wrong decade, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so, here. is that you? That's me. Oh my god! Hey, fantastic. Okay, <laughs> oh so my yeah, god, well, John, I'm very impressed. listening to a song I wrote. Oh my god! I'm very impressed, um, <laughs> and uh, you know, I mean, I, I I tried a little bit of teaching, not very long, and and I I sort of got as far as the school gates and would then run away. Oh you my know, god! So I, I'm I sorry. I'm like what what age do you now. teach? 
Uh, so I teach, I've taught kindergarten through high school. I'm currently doing kindergarten through eighth grade, and I do general music in the lower and Oh, and so I proper do, children. Uh, proper yeah. children before they've turned into teenage monsters. Well, I get the teenage <laughs> monsters, too. I get them in about seventh grade. I'm trying to teach so just them at the beginning, flute and trombone and all that stuff is just uh, a oh, thrill. fantastic. <laughs> well, look, yeah, I don't know my backstory. I mean, I was really lucky growing up in Bath. I mean, that's the uh, where, where I am now. Um, I've uh, I've lived all over the world, but I've sort of ended up back in my hometown. And it, because we had an international music festival run by Yehudi Menuhin, oh. and I went to a most unusual state school in that it had a full symphony orchestra. I, wow. I, I don't think such a thing exists in Britain today. Uh, and I, uh, it was all due to uh, an amazing music master whose, whose passion was to have an orchestra. And so this is a full orchestra with four horns and two bassoons, you know, the wow. whole nine yards. And uh, inside one, one boys' school, in uh, one boys' state uh, school in, in England. So I grew up with that, uh, orchestras all the way, and there were lots of youth orchestras. And we were encouraged were... to go into Europe, which is why I'm so sickened by Brexit. You know, I went to yeah. Denmark, and uh, the youth oh, orchestra man. went to Berlin just after the wall was built, and the cement was wet, and we all wow. pulled bits of cement off it, hoping it would fall down. <laughs> and... Um, so I, I was used to uh, traveling uh, abroad and, uh, uh, you know, the, the whole thing. And the music festival was fantastic. So I could sit next to people like Segovia and oh Earl Hines and uh, all these people coming through Bath, you know, to my little town in Western England. That's crazy. Um, so I had, uh, and then I got a scholarship to Oxford and uh, I played in the symphony orchestras there. And now, I, you were uh, a and trumpet I, player? I was a French horn player. French horn player, sorry. But, um, you know, orchestrally, you know, and uh, I took it a long way. But I, I then, I also played jazz trumpet, and so, and I played in a soul band uh, and things like that. And so, um, a, a very broad musical upbringing. Uh, I played in a band called the Soul Pushers, um, which uh, was... Um, the sax player was Alton Dean, who became the sax player in Soft Machine. Oh. Um, and I went off to Oxford and um, was first torn in the, symphony, the, the Oxford Symphony Orchestra and the Student Orchestra and all of that lot, you know. And then I did a music degree after. I did a Chinese degree, by the way, Oriental oh, wow. Studies. Oh, so that definitely. And I definitely spent a year in Hong Kong as first horn of the Hong Kong Philharmonic. Um, so uh, and uh, so I uh, that that kind of helped with Golden Harvest as was, well because they were a Hong Kong-based company. I was going to say there's lots of sort of uh, Asian-inspired like pentatonic kind of things happening all over the, the Turtle score too. I was I was actually asking about that. So that's really interesting. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, so I'd, I'd studied all that. I wanted to specialize in Chinese music, but they said no one could market, so I couldn't do that as part of my degree. I had so to do Chinese art instead. Was your degree but, uh, in, in uh, your music degree, was it performance or was it? Uh, it seems it, we don't quite know. It was, we, we, uh, I could have gone to, uh, to do a performance degree when I was 18, but, I, but I, with the Oxford Scholarship, I thought that was a more interesting route. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so it was. Um, well, it's, 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 it was, uh, I suppose, history, music, and composition, and uh, orchestration, and all that sort of stuff. So uh, that, and, and I was then invited onto the staff. So I, I at London University, I, I studied for a couple of years, um, uh, as a, as one of the tutors there. Um, but I had an interesting encounter. I, I met Python in '78. Mm -hmm. um, 
Uh, I did the title music to Life of Brian. Um, I, I, uh, I, I, there was a small <laughs> studio in uh, Covent Garden called Redwood Studios, and I used to use that studio. It was only an eight-track, but it was very nice. And um, they said, well, uh, we got this piece, uh, this Brian song. They wanted it to be like a Bond thing. So, so I did about 12 trumpets and eight French horns and built up this big band. Um, and then forgot about it, and I got a call and said, uh, the boys liked it, uh, will you come in and uh, see them? So wow. I, I, I came in, there was a very, this is a small control room with two big speakers, <laughs> and all the pythons standing in it, so the, the atmosphere was amazing. <laughs> when, they're all in, when they're all in one room, um, uh, it's it like was very electric. It's like a private performance, electric. I'd imagine. <laughs> They then played what my demo uh, at full volume. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> and uh, it was it was quite, everybody was kind of uh, electrified. It was like um, uh, that was my baptism into film music. And, wow! Um, very, you know. And and by the way, uh, we tried to get. Uh, we said, all right, well that was a good demo. Let's hire some proper players and get them to do it. No one could do it. So. Um, we ended. What what's on the film was my demo plus some strings, and oh. so. Um, uh, that's how it worked. But so um, uh, they they said, well, we're doing this film called Life of Brian. Um, can you uh, come in and uh, work with Eric on on a song called the Otto song? So there was a character called Otto in Life of Brian before yep. it got dumped, um, and I worked with Eric on that song, um, and. Then I went to the Highlands of Scotland to play trumpet for, for a wedding of, of a, uh, one of my nephews up in the, the, the wilds of Scotland and to play the trumpet voluntary. And uh, as I was playing it, the bride sort of came in up the aisle and my lungs burst and I collapsed and I ended up in intensive care in Inverness Hospital. Oh, dear. Luckily, the bride didn't know about this. She she just got to the the the, the altar, uh, and I collapsed and um, and went uh, and then I went down behind a so pew. That's, that's the mark of a true professional, right there. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You get, get the bride to the altar, then go down. So the show uh, must go on. <laughs> Stage so, yeah. so I was I was uh, I came to in a, in an ambulance rushing through to to Inverness Hospital, <laughs> and uh, I went into intensive care. Uh, because, um, you, you know, my heart was arrhythmic. I mean, it has, the, bursting your lung is the same symptoms as a heart attack. Oh, and I was, pretty, I was very young. I was kind of, sort of in my early 20s. Yeah. Um, and so uh, um, the nurse walked, walked, I was wired up to all these ECGs and everything. And, and this nurse walked in with a telegram. And the telegram was from Michael Palin. And it said, um, sorry to hear what happened, you know, hope you get, hope you're all right, sort of thing. Um, sorry, he could have been in brackets, because we want you to finish off the bloody song, you know. So, but, <laughs> <laughs> but he didn't put that. No, it was very nice. And so I was very, and, and I got absolutely nothing from London University. And so I decided there and then that life can, you know, get whisked away from you at any point. And I quit my safe job at London University and, um, you know, and thought, you know, I'd rather be working with Python on film music. So wow. that's how, and I was, of course, starved for the next 10 years trying to get established. So when Wanda came along, it was the end of uh, quite a few projects with Python. Um, and that was the first big international hit. And so I got on a plane with the family. We went over to Santa Monica. 
and I um, obviously got no work. <laughs> That's what happens to young European composers who try to go to Los Angeles. But I did get, um, I, I'd been working on a TV thing in England, so I got, uh, I, I used that. And I did a film called UHF with Weird Al Yankovic. Oh, yeah, I love that movie. By the way, this, this story is, it does have a point. It's a long rambling story, but here's where the point comes in. <laughs> the music editor on that UHF, by the way, the whole thing was $15,000 budget, including me. <laughs> so basically I did it for nothing. All, all of it went on the studio. So, and, but the music editor was um, a crazy lady called Catherine Quitner, um, very gifted uh, at uh, temp scoring and music editing. And she was quite a force of nature. And um, so... But, of course, we ran out of money and we had to go back to England. Um, and so I'm sitting in a flat in London, you know, uh, working on a BBC project, you know, mm -hmm. and the phone rang and they said, we want you to do Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. <laughs> so, so I said, what the hell is that? I had no idea what on earth that meant. <laughs> Luckily, I had a 12-year-old son um, called Sam. Uh, and I said, what on earth does this mean? And, and he said, oh, uh, well, it's, what every, it's everything that teenagers like. He said that it, teenagers, obviously, says for itself. Mutant is science fiction. Ninja is uh, martial arts and turtles are like dinosaurs and so <laughs> this, uh, this is nothing to, I, I think uh, Eastman and Laird have a different explanation on what the title came from but that was his explanation it was everything that teenagers That's like all rolled into one I like that a and lot and so I kind of got it then uh, I said oh yeah well, okay well, that, that, well they want me to do this so I went off and uh, uh, because Catherine when, when Malcolm McLaren got fired off the film um, then Catherine Quinter sort of put a little uh, bag together with my, my stuff. It was the, the Wanda CD and uh, the UHF score, some tapes, <laughs> various other bits. Yeah. Um, I mean, I was listening they, to... Sorry, I just want to... They liked out. it. Um, I was listening to The Fish Called Wanda score sort of in preparation for this, and I, I did notice a lot of similarities just stylistically. Uh, Pulling in different Look, the opening titles, you know, the da 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 da. Yeah, yes. That, that's, um, you know, I mean, it was just floating around in my head, and, uh, and that's the way it came out. But it sounds quite different. I mean, it's a, a totally different score, but the orchestrations are very similar, aren't yeah. they? Um, um, wow. <laughs> but when you're working fast, you know, you have to do what you know. Um, and I had so so basically, I got hired on because of Fiscal Wonder. They wanted a safe pair of hands. And they brought in a new editor, Bill Gordine, and so the idea was that we would get some experienced pros uh, and, uh, and, and try and sort out the film, because w w the, the way the film seemed uh, was that it w Steve had been extremely creative, um, and you know there were lots of amazing features about the film. But the, what, what, what I was told was that basically he was really good at three-minute structures, um, such as the uh, thriller video, you know. Yes. Uh, and and the, the, his his stock in trade was pop promos. Right. He did Aha. He did some Michael Jackson. He's yeah, done exactly. A lot of and so his, you know, on a three minute time scan, time time uh, time frame, you know, absolutely brilliant. But that the films kind of fell apart because because of the ninety minute uh, time frame, you know, and the the conventional structure of, of, a, of a feature film. I mean, there's so, 
feature films have been going for so long, you know, there's a body of uh, collective wisdom on, on how they should work. Right. Um, um, and uh, the feeling was that it, that it was an episodic, ep episodic film, you know, that it was brilliant in three-minute kind of bursts, but that it did not hang together as a 90-minute. Huh. Interesting. And that was that so, was the, the the challenge for us to 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 make something of it. And so uh, the way the the way I had been scoring feature films was to try and create themes for the different character areas, um, and uh, and then follow that through like a sort of Wagnerian leitmotif idea. And so that's what helped give it its structure and its coherence and it helped the it, it i always feel that my main job is to help guide the audience through it because they only they they, they only get one shot at seeing it yeah you and have so you, you you're a kind of spirit guide through the film and uh, that's what i tried to do you have this theme that runs through a lot of the pieces it's uh it's i guess it's uh the the foot theme it's this i'm gonna play it on guitar for you just so we can <laughs> <laughs> that thing right there that shows up all over this movie and I was listening to the Waxworks uh, recording today which I do want to ask you about also the, the, the vinyl pressing um, and that thing shows up in like the Foot Clan theme it shows up in some of the, the Splinter stuff in different variations in different sort of tonalities but it is this kind of like three note ascending and then this descending down to almost yeah. the leading tone thing that happens Oh, that's great. No one's ever pointed that out to me before. You know, that's one of the light, that's a leitmotif. I yeah. mean, and, and for me, it's a kind of very unsettling. It has a rising semitone and then a falling seventh. Yeah. And it's kind of, it, what it says is kind of, you, you, you know, be careful. Um, you, you know, we're, we're in dangerous water here. It leaves you feeling very unresolved. <laughs> the wolf's coming, Peter. Yes. Then of course when you get then that kind of relieves um, when I did Wonder, we had a wonderful old director called Charlie Crichton, and uh, and uh, and uh, we couldn't get insurance on him. You know that's why John Cleese has technically a director credit on the film uh. because he, <laughs> they couldn't get insurance on Charlie. But he said, "Your job is to wind them up." <laughs> <laughs> because if you wind an audience up, you get a laugh. True. And you don't get a laugh if the, if you haven't created some tension first, then you can't release the tension by means of laughter. Uh, the, 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 there's a wonderful example of that in E.T. You know where where um, when uh, when he when he survives and he goes out the tent, he bangs his, somebody bangs their head on the on the door, and yes. there's a huge <laughs> laugh. Well, well, that's not funny. But it's because the tension, you know, because you thought E.T. was going to die, and therefore there's a huge reservoir of tension in the audience. So when you bang your head on the door, it releases all that tension. And so you have to, in a score, you have to keep creating tension and, 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 uh, to, so that it pays off in a joke later. That, uh, I, that's, that's kind of one of my uh, things of, in scoring comedy. Yeah, well, uh, I, it the, works. The, the jokes don't happen by accident. You have to sort of lay all the preparation for them. And and I'll even say, there's not a lot. This first Turtles movie, there's not a lot of jokes as much as there are in in the second and third. Um, but there is a lot of musical tension. You you know, aside from the the sort of motif that I played earlier, you know, you yeah. have all this Tycho drumming and Shredder comes in, and it's just these long sections. Of well, you know, it, it, I'm uh, uh, that's Turtles three, the Tycho drumming. 
Well, even I'm in the interested. first one, I, if I remember correctly, there's this dung. Ja ja jung. Uh, the, yeah, that is a tight. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. That's when Shredder enters. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. That's all setting up tension. So yeah, it's, it's, um, it comes off these other scenes that are full of music, and it's just this one percussive thing where there's no music for a little stretch before the Shredder, the actual that like that low, almost Eddie Van Halen guitar yeah. comes in. But it's just it's like milking the audience, which I love. Well, I wanted to use you know traditional Japanese drumming for his entrance. I wanted to give him some kind of backstory. Yeah. Um, and uh, I'll tell you about the guitar on that. You know when 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 the da da da, which is a sort of um, <laughs> you know another kind of doom uh, doom motif connected with the other one. Um, I uh, we got in a session guitarist. Uh, and uh, he kind of played this, and I said, "Well, can't you put some? It sounds like sort of elevator music. <laughs> Can we not get some guts into this?" So we basically we couldn't. We we um, and so the the tape op uh, Darren Mora, uh, he had a friend in a punk band, so called Pete um, Pete Winkhorst, I don't know. Uh, and he, uh, anyway, he was a young punk guitarist, and he kind of dragged in some terrible beat-up equipment and sort of set it up. Um, and um, and then he let fly, and it was just the right sound. So uh, we had to search for that that sort of true grit guitar sound. Oh wow! Yeah. And that, that very 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 warehouse full of uh, skater kids. <laughs> yeah. When I uh, when I worked with Zelda Baron, and I worked with this punk band, you know, they brought in a bass cab, you know, and and he, and there was so much hum and distortion coming off the amp, you know, the speakers were clearly shot, you know, and it was overloading, and I said, this is terrible, you, you know, and they said, well, just wait till we start playing. And of course, once the band came in, it was perfectly, you know, it needed all that distortion and uh, to cut through. Yeah. So um, th that's what happened on that. Uh, you know, that was such fun getting this the, these huge guitar notes uh, <laughs> after the uh, Japanese drumming. Yeah, I, let's. I want to talk about a little bit more uh, uh, some of the detail things in the score that I noticed. Also, there's mm -hmm. a couple places. Um, oh gosh, where was it? I've made notes here. There's a couple places where there's like when Raph is fighting on the roof. A um, couple other places, there's all this crazy hi-hat work. It's just these really fast, like, syncopated 16th hi-hat things that are happening. It reminded me a lot of, like, Stuart Copeland of The Police. Um, well, that's, oh, well, hole in one, hole in one, because the drummer was Vinnie Caliuta. Oh! And he, he, he became uh, Sting's, Sting's uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, his, his, his yeah. you know, when Sting went solo, um, <laughs> then he became the honra. <laughs> so he replaced Stuart Copeland, basically. Oh, so, wow. But, but Vinny, but he was, well, it, it, yeah, well, let me explain a little bit then. Uh, we ended up, we, we couldn't afford a, a proper, we couldn't afford a proper studio deal. You know, we couldn't sort of go into uh, village recorders as we did on the second and third films, you know, and sort of right. book it out for three months with, with a decent budget. We had a very low budget. I think we had like 45000 for the whole thing, including orchestras and, and me. And, you know, it was, it was very, very low budget stuff. Um, wow. Because they'd spent all the money and they thought it was going to make a, a two million loss, you know. So they just, you know, I didn't have many resources, and so we went to Mad Hatter Studios in Silver Lake, um, and they would offer us a 24 lockout, 24-hour lockout deal for something like two thousand a day, which was very, very good, 
money then. And what they didn't know was that I was going to work round the clock <laughs> to uh, to get my 24 hours worth. Um, and I did that for a very long period of time, you know, with very little sleep and uh, just running the studio flat out as long as we could. Um, but it was run, it was owned by Chick Corea. Oh, and wow. so uh, although we didn't have much money, we did have Chick Corea studio uh, because they simply weren't doing anything over Christmas. It would have stand, stood empty or something like that. And they said, we, we can't afford for you to have an engineer. So the studio maintenance guy is called Larry Marr, and you can have him. <laughs> so I, I saw Larry Marr, and I was just so, so I mean, we're still friends. He, he came to Bath a couple of months ago uh, with his family, and, uh, and, and he's the only one, by the way, who's done all of the Turtles projects, because he scored all of the three Turtles scores with me. Oh, wow. And he also did the, uh, he worked on the new one, the, uh, oh, the, the new, Michael Bay uh, ones. The, yeah, yeah, he, he, when it came to the orchestral, so he's the only one who's worked on all of them. But oh, Larry wow. Marr's amazing, and, and he was just, he was there, he was there, a maintenance guy, he wasn't supposed to be an engineer, but he's, of course, <laughs> he's an amazing engineer, but they simply hadn't used him. I think in an environment like Chick Corea, you know, then the chief engineer's going to be God, you know, right. and, uh, uh, so uh, the, the, the studio God. maintenance is going to be like <laughs> God who would have been in any other studio if he hadn't been in Chick Corea's studio. So, uh, I mean, it was just, uh, we, we hit it off immediately. And so, uh, so we could get, uh, we had uh, John Patitucci, the bass player. We oh, had Vinny Caliuta. We had all these guys in because, because they were connected with small children right. uh, in some way. They had nephews and nieces or ch children Clever. of their own. And so they got very kind of high uh, brownie points for yeah, playing on yeah. this, this turtle score. Holy cow. So we could get anyone who we wanted, really, because, <laughs> because of the turtles. That's, um, that's, I mean, you're talking, John Petrucci is one of the like, God-based players of all time. <laughs> I agree with you, and okay. you know, and, and he had two lovely <laughs> solos. In you know, first of all, he has the very first notes of the score. Yeah. You know, that's John playing up high, and oh, he did man. a very nice thing on uh, when uh, um, uh, just before the bonfire scene. There's there's like one of the, after the big fight. You know, one is of the, the I can't remember which one is is out for the count. And there's a lovely kind of bass solo there. Is it, that. The, fretless? The, bathroom. Is it the fretless uh, bass solo? Yeah, that fretless, so that's John. Yeah, so, oh, my gosh, so, uh, I was going to ask about that. I just wanted to share, uh, my band one time opened a show with the Turtles Hero theme from this movie, and that was all ah. out of just me in the studio messing around on that bass line. So that's, ah. <laughs> that's been that's a huge Bango. influence. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So we were just very, very lucky to get the, uh, to get the, uh, you know, these these lovely soloists, um, and uh, and also we had this great uh, kind of, uh, trying to remember what it was called. It was a like a synclavier, I think. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think it was a synclavier. It was it was basically Chick Corea's sample library. Wow. And so we had this big kind of uh, clunky computer thing to play with. <laughs> Um, you know, very big and, uh, of course, back in 1990. Um, and when it came to the uh, bass drum for the, uh, for the title theme, 
uh, I went through all the samples and we came up with a base, a basketball hitting a, a, a court. You know, that is the bass drum for that. Oh, man. You know, dun, 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 dun. <laughs> So the bass drum there is a, is a basketball hitting a court. We thought that was appropriate. <laughs> Did you have oh, that down there in New York? Too? Well done. No, no, it just that's how it. I mean, it's a very, it's a very kind of low thuddy sound. <laughs> yeah. That's uh, well, well, you know, Larry worked his magic on the on the EQ, so right. we got a, all the bass re frequencies out of it. But oh, it, it was, it, so, it was, it was. And I would have to, you know, that when we, we've been talking about doom and gloom in the score, but the there's, you know, there's there's a funky element to the turtles, you know, which is, uh, I thought would be appropriate for the surfing thing. Yeah, you. And did. I had been in a band called Modern Romance. Ah, uh, I was going to ask you about that too. <laughs> and the first, uh, the first um, uh, hit we had was called uh, was called Everybody Salsa. Yep. And the club mix of that went to number one in New York, and we were voted by the New York DJ Syndicate uh, number one band for that year, I think 1981. Wow. And therefore, I associated that kind of funk sound with New York as well. So for me, it was kind of a teenage New York thing. Yeah, there's sort of hints of like, I, I kind of hear uh, Morris Day in the Time kind of thing or even chic like a Niles Rogers kind of thing in, in a lot of the guitar work and a lot of the arrangements yep. or Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis that kind of thing and then it's interesting because you mix all of that stuff with like little bits of like hard rock like Van Halen and then all of this wonderful like John Williams-esque classical stuff that happens all over there's the the scene where Casey and Raph are sort of going at it in the park. Uh, one of our guests called it the turtle mischief light motif. We were kind of doing those plunking pizzicato <laughs> strings. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ding, ding, ding. And yeah. it's, it's so, I, I think in the show I said this could have been in Harry Potter. Like, it's such a, like, playful, jovial, mischievous thing. Um, but it's all, it's, it's very orchestral. And you've got those, like, giant, uh, the strings are kind of, like, rolling up and back down. Yeah. Well, you, you, you kind of hit, hit two spots there. I mean, you know, one is that uh, John Williams is one of my great heroes. Um, and secondly, as you know, I've been growing up with orchestras since the age of 11. And so, uh, you know, that's kind of my base. You know, that's my kind of uh, default position, mm -hmm. is orchestras. You know, I was conducting BBC Philharmonic last week. You, and you know, I'm I'm, I'm, I'm happiest in front of an orchestra. For me, that, that, you know, that, that's kind of the happiest place for me. Um, uh. I was lucky. We, I have the same agent as John Williams, and I went to see one of his screen when he conducted to screen in New York with the uh, New oh. York Philharmonic. Wow! And so, and I was invited backstage afterwards. And so, um, I, uh, I found it difficult to get backstage. Um, and and I and I kind of listened out for the hubbub of of all the kind of people, uh, you know, the clinking of glasses and the big right. party backstage. Was this a, so I kept was listening Lincoln out Center? for this, and I couldn't hear. And I finally got to the room. And he was there on his own. <laughs> so, uh, no big part. So I had 15 minutes on my own with John Williams, oh, eating wow. crisps and sipping ginger beer and uh, talking about uh, life and music. It was just wonderful. Was he familiar with any of your work? I didn't want to talk about my work. <laughs> I didn't talk about his work. <laughs> I don't think you would go in and talk about your own. Would you do that? Would you go in into John Williams and talk about your I'm own? I'm sitting here talking to you, and I'm still freaking out that you were listening to one of my songs. <laughs> um, yeah. So no, I would just let John Williams talk until he fell asleep. 
<laughs> I would love to tell you also about the, the, the what we call the genealogy of the turtles. You know that little super eight section? Uh, oh the, the yeah, the um the origin story. The origins of the turtles. Yeah. I'd just like to kind of uh, oh, tell you about that because I think that's nice. I mean, first of all, um it was shot on Super Eight. Um, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> and I will never forget the, the, the image of the assistant, uh, Jim Simmons, uh, trying to edit this stuff. It was like somebody uh, trying to eat sushi with a sort of, with a, with a hat pin, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I've edited eight millimeter film. It is not fun. <laughs> it was, it, he didn't like it, you know. And the reason Steve, Steve chose it, because it was kind of very hip with the film students. So, so he wanted to kind of have a sequence in there. And I, I suppose to give it a kind of historic feel, you know, sort of archive feel. It does pull it away from the regular sort of visual aesthetic, which is nice. Something that happened in the 70s and yeah. was recorded with the family camera. But, but anyway, I, I remember the, the producer, David Chan, sort of, because, uh, of course, you know, a, a film doesn't get composed, it gets spotted. You know, you, you're, you're aware of all that, aren't you? I mean, it's that right. you... you the cutting room is the place, and you have the editor and the producer and, and, and the composer. Uh, and usually the director, except the director was had been let go. So um, uh, there were there, basically the three of us would sit around and discuss the uh, the, the film. And Catherine quit there if she was around, um, and we would come up with a philosophy for each each area. You see, and so when it came to that one, he said, "Right, well, this." Uh, I remember he looked at me. He said, "John, this is very serious." Uh, uh, this is like a documentary, um, and so we want to score this like one of those Hong Kong martial arts films, you know, very, very serious. Right. So, <laughs> Master of the Flying Guillotine. And I thought, I tried, I, I tried my best, you know, and I thought, this stuff is basically terrible, and it's so funny. I mean, it's just, I mean, when, when, when Splinter flies at his face, Right. It looks like like an assistant cameraman's got hold of a toilet roll and sort of thrown it, <laughs> thrown it at him. And I thought, I just kind of gave, and I just thought, and, and, and that kind of little um, uh, conga groove came into my head. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and the kind of pizzicato. And, just, and, and, I, and I thought, I know I'm going to get fired, you know, but I just have to... <laughs> Just do it this way, <laughs> and um, uh, and so everybody had to concede that it was hilariously funny once I'd scored it like that, <laughs> and um, and uh, uh, but uh, I, I think he was still David Chan still had his reservations about whether it should be serious or not. So we did it that way, and, and we did you know the Canoga Park screenings, the famous Canoga Park um, you know sample screenings. You know about them? I, I don't know. There's an area of, of L.A. called Canoga Park, and it's like the, the average American demographic. It's got the right number of, of everybody. Uh. <laughs> so uh, they always take their film down to Canoga Park and screen it there to see what audiences think. Okay. And we did that for the three or four times. But they, um, so we, we put that music in and took it down, and, of course, you know, the whole audience went, went uh, <laughs> and... Uh, and David came and said, uh, John is marvelous. The whole audience was crapping. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it stayed in. 
That, it works. But it didn't start. It didn't start out like that. See, that's the Tom the and Jerry one, aesthetic. The second yeah. one is a little bit more serious, but the first one is just just for laughs. Now it's funny because on the on the vinyl score, there's an alternate take of of I think it's Splinter talking to Danny, which is the second origin section, and it mm -hmm. it does have that conga groove back in it. It's it's is that like an alternate uh, take on that or? Uh, I'm, I noticed that on the... I've only just got the... It arrived like a couple of hours before this podcast, oh, and wow. so uh, I've, I've only just seen it. And by the way, I did some long liner notes which weren't in it, so I'm not sure where the liner notes went. Oh, uh, I but, would love to see those. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, so I'll ask them, I'll ask Waxwork what that's all about. Maybe they're holding it back for the for the CD if they ever do one. Oh. But, um, you should just I let them email they, them to us, that's all. <laughs> yeah, there were lots of liner notes for it, but uh, it... it, it um, I, I, it, it's too. It's like 18 months since I did the mixes. I can't, and I haven't. I haven't played it since uh, I got it back, so I can't answer that. I can't. Can't remember what the alternate mix is. I, it's, um, it's, it may be because uh, it, uh, I, I, I'm trying to think what it might be. Uh, it might have been a longer version, or it might have had different instruments in. I can't remember. Yeah. I, regardless, it's pretty cool. I'd never heard that particular piece in the film so and there's a couple of those alternate mixes on the vinyl which oh, I see. oh, oh yeah it was an outtake basically yeah oh, okay. so i see yeah yeah i think yeah if you don't recognize it and you go through minute by minute then it's not likely to be there, <laughs> if anyone's going to recognize it we will <laughs> certainly scott anyway yeah. um yeah i have to ask like when you were actually sitting down to write this i mean i know some composers sit down at a piano and they'll go through and play out their melody and their harmonics and all that stuff ahead of time did you, how did you sit down to actually put music to this? Did you have a, a piano? Were you like playing on another instrument? Was it all in your head? How did you actually like put this to paper? Well, um, uh, point one, no piano, because uh, you know, I, I just got on a plane uh, with uh, my stuff. And, um, and I think I ended up, yeah, in, I ended up in, in what, in uh, locally known as Jokewood Apartments. In in uh, in LA, there there were there were service apartments in Marina del Rey called Oakwood Apartments, you know where you basically you can rent a flat for a month, uh, and it'll have a phone and a and a now it will have internet, you know. In this, so in other words, you just rent it for the month. It's not like a hotel, you know. It's got a kitchen and a. Right. So I rented one of those to be near the cutting rooms and um, uh, and. Uh, Basically, we just got a pile of equipment. I mean, no piano. I, I, I had a... The, the, when I went over to do Wanda, um, I went into a music, score, uh, a music store and discovered the, um, uh, um, the uh, let me have a... It's, it's the... Um, I'm blanking on this. It's the... Um, I, I'm going to have to go and have a look. Can you just like hold a, a sec? I'll, I'll get the keyboard out. But it was basically an electronic keyboard. Like that, a Moog or that, a Korg? No, no, no. It's a Korg. Yeah, the Korg M M1. The Korg okay. M1. Um, of course, it's it's in a cupboard now, so it doesn't have. <laughs> but the the amazing thing about the Korg M1 was that it had eight channels, and you could plug in the you could put headphones in. And it had like some reverb on, you know, and it had eight different channels. You could sequence. So it was the first multi-timbral wow. synth that I'd come across. And, and I remember in 1988 uh, putting on the headphones in the store and hearing this thing. So this, this, uh, my, my, my staple instrument then was the Korg M1. 
And so you're going to hear that. It had a lovely guitar sound, which you'll hear, you know, in the splinter. All of those acoustic guitar, you know, uh-huh. the, the kind of classical guitar, are all Korg M1. That's all synth, huh. okay. Um, and so uh, it was written on a Korg M1. And the, and the nice thing also about it was that in the before... Um, I had an Akai uh, sampler as well, which, which had some basic orchestral sounds. So I had like tremolando strings, uh, which you'll hear, you know, when the turtles are being introduced. Right, at the uh, sort of ascending um, the, the little string tremolando cues. Yep. That, that's coming off the Akai sampler. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, you know, and I could do, well, for, for Weird Al Yankovic's film, UHF, you see, no orchestra. I mean, it was all, it, that was all entirely done on the Akai sampler and the M1. That's, that's uh, incredible. That's because very we couldn't afford how well, I've been. Plus, Al's, I had Al's, it's very uh, local access cable. <laughs> I had Al, 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 I had the guitarist and the drummer and the bass player and the flute player, you know, and Mr. that's Bermuda, about it. Bermuda Schwartz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, but all the rest is, is samples, you know, so I'd learned to, I, I had very early uh, computer uh, programs, um, and I think Performer was the one we were using then. Mm-hmm. By the way, when I went over in 88, uh, I, 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 I had just got an Akai computer to run, uh, and I went, I came over and I thought, well, I, 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 I can't. I can't bring it over with me. The voltage is a different, so I'll buy one when I get there. So I said, I went to um, a computer store, and well, there weren't computer stores, but I went to a <laughs> store and, and said, can I get an Akai computer? And they said, go to Sears. So I went to Sears, and, and that was in the games department, because Akai's only did, like, gaming consoles right. then. <laughs> and so uh, I, I was cast adrift. I couldn't find an Akai. So I found a Mac SE30, um, and we, we, uh, the, we, uh, which we put together for UHF. So I, uh, uh, the, com- the p- performer was the, um, was the uh, program that worked. And so um, we, there were some problems with it. And so uh, they said, well, let's just drive out to the guy who designs it. So we drove out to the valley and found out that when there was a man with a beard. You know, I was com- coming from England, this was completely uh, alien. You know, that, that there was <laughs> a person behind this stuff. And we talked to him and sort of uh, said about it. And he explained how to get around these problems. And he took on board the uh, uh, issues we had. And he said he'd build it into the next version of, wow. uh, of the... Uh, and so that's right. You know, so I was in on, on the SE... The, the SE30 and uh, Performer before, um, it, now of course it's all integrated into Pro Tools, so I mean life is so much easier now, you can bring the film in to Pro Tools, you can do everything all in one program, and so since I've been on Pro Tools, but back, back then it was very, very difficult, you had big machines which right. had to be linked by SMPTE code, you know, and 50 hertz yep. code, and all that stuff, and it was very, very difficult getting these machines to boogie together. I could imagine. Um, uh, and so, you know, we, lots of tricks went around. But that, that, that's how it was. Uh, it was all done that, on that sort of sequence. There was, of course, lovely pianos once I got into Mad Hatter because we had Chick Corea's pianos. Right, which so I had got full to use that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's comforting. Oh, I actually I do some composing on a podcast, and, and I've done all of it in Apple GarageBand using built-in synths. So it's it's... It's not all terribly dissimilar to how you did the Turtles film, I guess, uh, up until you got into the studio. 
Yeah, but, uh, but I, of course, it's because I came up through a very traditional mill, um, you know, playing in orchestras and, you know, the whole idea that um, music would come out of a sequence or a computer or a record. Recording was what you did after you had the music. Right. So basically you found the music first and then you recorded it. It wasn't sort of part to that. So I was well used to writing in my head most of the time. And so, and, and I find uh, traveling very stimulating. So if I'm driving along or on a train or anything like that. So driving around LA is where a lot of the ideas came from. And I think that the turtle theme itself came from uh, going up San Vicente Boulevard. <laughs> nice. There is a little section in the score where you actually do a 12-bar blues, like Dick Dale kind of surf thing, too. Uh, is that the surfing thing? When, the surfing. Yeah, when Donatello movie? is skateboarding. There's, it's, it's only used for a short section in the movie, but there's a longer sort of version of it on the, the vinyl release. Yeah, well, I extended it, you know, purely because of that, because it was so short in the film. And I wish I could have done more things like that. Yeah. I reprised it very shortly in Turtles 2 when they're in the laboratory fight. We literally yes. they just kind of, recorded. They're going along on a trolley. We so, just uh, recorded that minute of the show like yesterday. <laughs> I, I would love to have done more of that, but of course, you know, it, you, it, the film is king. You have to make yeah. do what makes the the, the film work, and uh, it will dictate uh, just about everything about the score, um, apart from your imagination. Yeah. So uh, it, it's uh, I, I would love to have. I think you could have done the whole the whole movie like that, but it wouldn't. It, it simply wouldn't have carried uh, many of the sections. You know, to do a rock and roll score all the way through. Well, I I, I liken this score um, to sort of the music of the Princess Bride. There's something about, and I guess it's the the synthesizers that you use and the way that you sort of tackled actually the process of composing the music for this. I don't think that there's very many movies out there where the score is so directly married to the film. Princess Bride is one. You know, I wouldn't even say that Star Wars necessarily is one. This film is one. I don't think that this particular music would work for any other movie. And also, as soon as you hear any piece of music from oh, this I... film, you know what it's from. It's just, it fits so perfectly. No. Oh. Well, that, that's, that, that's thrilling to hear. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't, uh, it's, it's kind of what you hope when you do it, but it's, <laughs> it's not necessarily uh, what ends up or, or, or that people realize it. Um, there's, um, uh, there, there, there are efforts being made to try and get a live to screen um, thing going. Oh, my God. <laughs> I am all for it. He just that. made his day. If you need a percussionist for the orchestra, <laughs> call me. Well, I'll be there. The thing. I am classically the trained. I mean, if we can, it, these are all, I mean, it's, it's a ton of work for me to do a, a, a I have a friend um, uh, called Mark Mann who's been working on the Ghostbuster uh, live to film, you know, which they're oh, going to do. Yeah. He's been working with oh, the wow. composer's son. Um, it's a very difficult job because, you know, uh, you only do a film once, you know, you get it right once, whereas right. when, you, when you do it live, I mean, I learned that with Spamalot. Once I got into live theater, you have to do it live every night, eight times a week. So you have a, a whole different <laughs> way of looking at things. Wow. Um, uh, so I... You know, those things that were only produced once will have to be produced live. So it's well, going to be quite that, a challenge. I imagine it's got to be difficult to go back and actually, now you have to sort of write out charts for all the parts in the movie exactly as they are in the movie. You don't get to use sort of your original uh, scoring. You have to use the edited stuff that shows up in the film. Exactly. Which, which and of course, we only, had, 
we only had um, the the norm for me, you know, doing British independent films was that you had one three-hour session with the orchestra and one three-hour session with a reduced string orchestra for the more intimate moments. Mm -hmm. And so that's all I had on this. I had two three-hour sessions. So a lot of them, you know, so it probably only contributed about uh, a third to a half of the right. score was from was from life. So everything else would have to be done. But Ellie's got, you know, has amazing players, and and uh, we can get like four keyboard players in the, in, you know, and that sort of thing to right. to make it all happen, um, and try and do it live. That um, that would be amazing. I'll be there. I'm buying the ticket well, now. So if we can get it together in LA, um, uh, then uh, uh, and and it might. It's nice that we're on this podcast because I think it'll have to be kind of. Uh, it's called Kickstart funding. I think you have to get people oh. to buy 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 uh, tickets to it first so that you can afford to put it on, and then. So if we can do it in LA, then we would love to tour it. Of course, you know. So we would yeah. like, take it everywhere. Oh my goodness! Yeah. So let's we'll we'll keep the listeners sort of up to date on that. When when it if is there a Kickstarter already live for that? Um, no, no, it's very early stages. So okay. I'm hoping to go over. Um, uh, you may know that there were rumors of a Spamalot film next year. So I um, didn't. Uh, we, we, IMDb just said there's a rumor. Oh dear. Well, uh, that's awesome. Yeah. There were rumors in there. It it got kind of leaked last last um, uh, last uh, Easter somewhere like that. You know. So it's. So um, we're hoping that it goes ahead. There's nothing definite yet, but we're hoping that it will go ahead next year. And so I'll have to be over in L.A. in February to sort of set up on that. And so we were going to have sort of more detailed discussions then. I'd love to do UHF as well. I've been, I wanted to get something for the 25th anniversary, um, and I think, uh, but it's, uh, you know, with Weird Al, but I think his band did something uh, for the 25th. And, and so, but... Um, I've conducted at Hollywood Bowl with the uh, Bowl Orchestra, and that would be my total wow. dream, would be to do it with them, um, uh, you, you know, and maybe a double incredible. bill. Uh, I, I think it would. they would sit together quite well, don't you think? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think that would be a I haven't, I'm, that outdoor I feel, venue. <laughs> I feel bad that I've talked, you know, perhaps Rachel and Adam and Chris could comment on this, because um, <laughs> they'd be sitting there I was actually going to ask, do you guys have any get a bloody word in edge. Do, you, do you think those two films work well together? <sighs> UHF and, and TMNT. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think they'd work well together. Bit. Um, I, there are, I didn't realize you, you worked on UHF. I, I love that film, specifically the music in that film. Like, there's one spot, uh, I think it's called Fun Zone. Mm. I love that little bit. Which um, one? Oh. Uh, what was it's, that? It's where Bozo the Clown comes out, that one. Yeah, yeah. It's just this, like, total, just maddening. <laughs> like, Say hello uh, to Mr. Frying Pan, is it that one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's, a, there's a whole website, by the way, on catchphrases from UHF. Have you ever come across that? It's really, really a lot of fun. It has some of my, my favorite visual gags in movies ever, like uh, supplies. Oh, it gets me every time. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, plots are us as well. Tired of sloppy funerals. I mean, it's just full of wonderful catchphrases. You know, Gandhi too. He's back and he's mean and he's back and he knows how to party. So, uh, he's, uh, I would, those, I, I would, if my life had gone in another direction, I would have stayed in LA. I wouldn't have run out of money. I would have done films like UHF and Turtles One. You know, and nothing else. So, um, but it didn't quite work out that way. So. Um, I, I was just going to add, um, getting back to 
seeing it performed live with an orchestra. I've seen the Game of Thrones orchestra. I've seen the Legend of Zelda and a number of, of my favorite Tchaikovsky pieces. And there's something different about hearing that music live. It's... Oh. There's I think there's such something an emotional wonderful about thing. hearing everything live. You know, oh, I mean, yeah. music's always different live because then the audience becomes like 50% of the experience. Yeah. yeah. It's more tactile. Yeah. But, yeah. You, you get... Oh, yeah. You know, and there's something kind of, um, uh, you, you know, I think as human beings, we love kind of skill and talent and watching people do things we can't do. Yeah. Um, and, and in a film, it's all kind of buried and hidden, and you don't know what kind of technical tricks have gone on behind the scenes. But when you see it in front of your eyes, there's something mm -hmm. kind of, you know, seeing John Williams do uh, do Star Wars theme. You know, I never realized how difficult the string parts were oh until because they're kind of mixed yeah. low. But when you hear the 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 the, <laughs> the, uh, the uh, the New York Philharmonic strings trying to cope with that writing. I mean, it's mm. it's virtuosic writing of the first order, and you don't realize that when you hear the film. I'll give him yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, listen. Yeah. For percussion parts, I played a number of the, the pieces from Star Wars in college in the orchestras, and the percussion mm. lines are insane, too, and you never notice it in the film. Like oh, it's, yeah. It's, you have to be a player. Yeah. If you ever I get a chance to hear the 1812 beat. overture with cannons, do that. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> There's a nice uh, bit. Do you, do you remember in the second part of the fight, you know, when er the, in the Turtles one, when everything catches fire? Yes. Yeah, as it gets you know, darker and more sinister. I call it the, being I call jokey, it the and it goes, it, it goes into a different kind of gear there, doesn't it? it, it, it um, I remember I gave Vinnie Caliuta the part, and uh, it's in 11-8. And, oh, I didn't even um, notice that. Oh my God! Yeah, you check it out. You try and you try and count four to that piece. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the, the the synthesizer is doing almost like a Bach toccata thing, where it's like da do di do da do da do di do da do da do da dum. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so it, it's in eleven eight, and 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 my story about Vinny, who by the way uh, was always reading a magazine while he worked. <laughs> um, you know, uh, there was a famous French horn player called, called um, uh, 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 I won't go down that route, but anyway, he always read a magazine, and I thought he was just being rude because you'd ask him to play something, and he'd carry on reading the magazine, and I said, well, you know, what planet is this guy on? I said, don't worry, just wait till the red light goes on and he'll play it, you know? And, and that's where it was. He, he played this 11-8 piece in one take. Wow. But when it came to the orchestras, um, the bass players couldn't play it. You know, so they Jeez. said, well, how do we know where to come in? And I said, well, you have to count, you know, um, <laughs> and, uh, which was a novel concept, you know, but th that was the way it was. They, had the, they, they, they found it very challenging. To, and they had it. It was what we call a football score, you know, lots of uh, big semi-briefs. Yeah. Um, and even they couldn't, but it was semi-briefs tied to um, yeah, and the drums, I love the percussion on that track specifically because it doesn't play a beat. He's not rhythmic. He's just doing these crazy fills, these like trash can, like huge, giant, like tom-tom stuff, which is... I think he would be like an ang anger management counselor's dream, you know, to kind of all <laughs> man trying to sort this guy out. Well, because, <laughs> you know, once he, once he hits the drums, I mean, his... Another little story was that in in one of the fight the nunchuck fights we were trying to you know uh, we, we watched we, we did a we did a take you know where, where, and and we felt it wasn't quite right and so we had um, a, a machine called an AMS sampler do you remember those yeah, yeah you know yeah. from the eighties nineties 
and basically it could work to milliseconds. So you could sample the note and then move it. Right. It would be dead easy on a computer now, but it was <laughs> not back then. And we moved this note one millisecond, and it was correct. Ugh. And that's always a thousandth of a second. And so I realized that, that, uh, that his, his, his kind of drumming sensibility was within a thousandth of a second. That's insane. There's and so was mine. You know, we all knew it was wrong. You know, so <laughs> it was... And, and, I, and, and this, uh, by the way, this, um, uh, you know, this little session I did with BBC recently um, for an animation, and they, they, this is a BBC staff orchestra, and they said, well, we don't work to clicks and we don't wear headphones. Mm. So um, I had a minute and a half sequence, and so, well, that's fine, I'll conduct it. And it came out frame accurate, so I'm really pleased with that. I call it Zen archery, you know, it's where you... Often I will look at a sequence, a film sequence, and then I won't have my keyboard facing the screen, by the way. Oh, wow. I look at the sequence, and then I turn away and write it, and then it fits perfectly. Hmm. That's, in that's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. Because you, you should, what you should do is, I think the human brain registers the film, and then you should think about the music, not the film. Uh, you, know, yeah. you know, the film's in there. The film's in your head. So you then concentrate on the music and make it work musically, and then it will work. Kind of just sync it up internally. That's in very, uh, it's very zen. <laughs> I, I think, have you noticed when a dog wags its tail, it's banging time? Yes, yep. I'm really always amazed. You know, it really is very, very accurate and, and strictly I, in time. So I think it's, it's built into all, all kind of uh, animal life on the planet, you know, this this sense of rhythm and, yeah. uh, well, and, and timing to the degree where you know people know what tempo a song needs to be to dance to you you look at bands who want to write a pop hit and they know that you have to yeah. write it at like 110 beats per minute to get people on the dance floor you know and that's just the way the human rhythm kind of works everyone's i'm very superstitious i won't i won't use prime number beats oh really <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, uh, you know, some of my favorites are, are 80, 90, and uh, 120. 120 is marvelous because it divides so many different ways. You know, yeah. it's, it's 2, 4, 6, 8, uh, 16. It, 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 whereas um, I did a couple of films with a, a director called Michael Winner, who's no longer with us, but he wasn't renowned for his musicality. And uh, nor his cutting. He he did a lot of his own film editing, and and I found I was always being forced into prime numbers because the cuts were not kind of graceful and rhythmic. Gotcha. And usually, when when you come into a film, I always feel that, that one of the one of the first tasks is to find the rhythm of the film or a particular sequence, mm -hmm. because they all have. I had a, a lesson from John Cleese on that. Um, the first time I ever got into a cutting room was with him editing Life of Brian. And he, I just sat in, uh, quietly in, in the corner, more or less, while he was editing. And, and he kept snapping his fingers to the editor. So he'd say, you, you know, sort of, uh, blessed are the meek. Yeah. Then he'd snap his fingers. And I, and I kind of asked them what, what he was doing. And he said, well, you know. So he was, he, he was measuring... Even dialogue has a rhythm. Well, in fact, you know, all good acting yeah. has a rhythm. And you have to find that rhythm and get in there with it. Well, we've when we mentioned that. that. It kind of belongs to the film and the, the music. You couldn't imagine the film without it. You know, it's partly because you've got to sort of, by osmosis, you've got to get into the film and find out what the rhythms are, the acting rhythms, 
the filming rhythms, you know, the way right. that the editor has cut it, they're all setting up rhythms. Yeah. And you've got to kind of work out what is the common factor here? What's the, what's the one that pulls it all together? Well, we, we've, we've made it this far without bringing up what uh, <laughs> what Adam's about to describe. Yeah, we, we've mentioned this a lot on the show, specifically in season one with, with the first movie, is that movies that are quotable and, and movies like this that are almost front-to-end quotable is the dialogue itself has a musicality to it. Like, you can almost sing along to the, to the movie itself. Absolutely, I agree. It's a, it's a kind of rap, um, and... Uh, I would, I almost uh, prefer soundtrack albums with that have the dialogue in, because you then sort of understand how the music works with it. I mean, it's it's frowned upon. You know, you're supposed to give the score without the dialogue because it, you never hear it in the clear otherwise. And how on earth could music editors steal it and use it to tempt their films with if it had dialogue all over it? So you have to be considerate. Um, but I absolutely agree with you. I mean, it makes much more sense to me to have the dialogue in there uh, with, with the music, you know. But then, of course, you can just turn off, you can have that, you just turn off the, uh, the screen and listen that's to it, listen to the DVD without the screen. <laughs> right. that's so so that's, that, you could, that's out there already. I also love the sort of quality of soundtracks, you know, when, uh, you, you know, like American in Paris or something like that, which I used to have on a cassette. You know, when you have a Stairway to Heaven comes up, you know, there's a sort of crackle and a sort of <laughs> going on, <laughs> which kind of makes the music sound better. <laughs> right. Um, it gives I've... it a mellowness, a sort of analog warmth that, that um, you, you know, that you don't get when you hear it in the clear. Yeah. I, I, well, the nice thing is on the Waxwork record, uh, again, plugging that, if you haven't gotten it yet, go to Waxwork Records and get the Turtles 90 score. It's amazing. Well, I tell you, you know, it just came through. I mean, I, it, it arrived on my desk this afternoon. I can't so, uh, new record. First. <laughs> uh, only after I paid £22 to the customs to release it. They, uh, and customs impounded it, and they wouldn't... Uh, so oh, I've only just seen it, and I haven't even heard it yet. So well, um, it, there's there's a bunch of stuff on there, This the Splinter Origin story stuff, where it has all the dialogue, the Kevin Clash dialogue, and the baby turtle sounds. And all that stuff, and it's 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 amazing to listen to. There's a there's a couple of takes and, and outtakes of that on there. Um, it's but well, you see, yeah, I'm well. I mean, I mixed that album. I mean, I, I did it just over a year ago, so um, it, it came from my desk that so, album. So why? I guess you know we'll we'll reach the end here. I have just a couple more questions, and maybe you guys too. But why uh -huh. hasn't this ever been put out before? I don't think this score has ever been released up until this point. Except for well, uh, I think it comes. <laughs> I, I suppose it would come back to the fact that that um, uh, nobody cared about it. I have to tell you that that when 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 the uh, I was going to uh, the reason uh, the reason we have this album is that ten years ago all the Python tapes were falling to bits, and uh, a lovely guy called Bob Ezrin, uh, who's head of Seventh Level uh, in in America, you know, he said. Unless you digitize it, you're going to lose it all, you know, right. because the, uh, the tapes, fall, the, the old analog tapes fall to bits, you know, the glue falls to bits and, the, and the, the, the oxide falls off. And so you have to bake these tapes and transfer them. And so I had to do that for the whole, everything Python, you know, it took right. me five years to do it. Um, and so while I was doing it, I thought, well, why don't I do my own stuff? So I baked my own stuff. 
but it turned out that I was the only one on the planet who had the score. Oh my God. Whoa. <laughs> because because the, the film company had lost it, you know. Every time, I mean, it went through about three different hands, you know, it got sold on about three or four different times. Sure. Um, I can't even remember who it came at. It was Golden Harvest distributed through. I can't even remember who it was distributed through, the first the first one. Can you tell me that? Uh, new, new which line studio cinema? put it out? New Line. Hmm? New Line cinema. Oh, it was New Line. Yeah. Okay, so New Line. Yeah. yeah, I think maybe they just did the distribution, but it was a small independent Hong Kong company that did it. But um, I, So I thought, well, Larry Ma has everything, you know, so I asked Larry Ma, I said, have you got the, have you got the turtle score? And he said he didn't. So... Luckily, I had some uh, DATs, and I had some multi. I didn't have any multi tracks, but I did have the uh, quarter inch and two inch, uh, and sort of half inch tapes and things okay. like that. And so I managed to put it together like a jigsaw puzzle. Um, I'd lost all the cue sheets, so I had to go back to the DVD and make new cue sheets, and then <laughs> try and sort of like like needle in a haystack, get, get, put it all in film order, and then try and. And of course, it's all in tiny bits, and so I had to amalgamate them into uh, listenable chunks of sort of two or three minutes. And um, so I found actually that by taking the little, and also in film, you, you, you know, like in the big fight, you know, like something's happening on screen, so you have a big long held note. Right. Well, yeah. I found that very irritating to listen to. So I, I, <laughs> I, I took out all these big long held, you know, so it's more rhythmic. And, and also, yeah. If it was going on too long, you know, if there were lots of repeats, I simply took out some repeats and sort of, or, or if there weren't enough, like in the case of the sewer surfing, I, I extended it, I doubled it, and I, and I had to do some, uh, make some links to make the doubling work. So you had a lot of hands-on work to get this ready to press then, which is kind of Yeah, but, and also to try and, you know, there's, you know, I go back to the, to Sergeant Pepper, you know, where you could put an album on and listen to it in one go, and it would make sense yeah. as an arc, and you know, so I had to get a nice arc to it as well. There is a really nice arc to it, because it's, you know, it starts off with, you know, what you would think it starts off with, you know, the Turtles theme, and then you get all these different theme introductions, and then they keep coming back in different keys, or they start mixing different you know, themes together as the, the record goes on. It's really a good thing to listen to from top to bottom. I, I just, I started listening to it again last night, side one and side two, and then just this morning before we, we called you, I listened to side three and four again, just to keep it fresh in my ear. But it does flow well, really that's very Well, that's very charming of you to say. Um, one of the directors of Spamalot uh, said after the, uh, he said, uh, the music is what is the glue that holds this thing together, and I always believe that. You know, I think that's what it has to do. It's the, it, it, it it's because a film is like um, photographs sellotaped together, <laughs> basically. <laughs> and you, to make it, to make, to make, um, you know, it needs a glue to hold it together. Yeah, I, I would wholeheartedly agree. Um, so in the process, and the glue of is, is, is kind of is, is giving themes to is to having me, you know, give. If you play under one scene, you give that music some meaning. It's like a, it's like a, a perfume that the, the, the next time the scene comes up, you can, you know how perfume is so evocative of memory. Yeah, scent memory. You know, if you if you smell a certain perfume, it takes you back to where you first smelled it. And mm -hmm. and I think that film scoring's like that. You well, know, and I, I think it works both ways. I think that the music, you know, 
impacts the, the visual, but I also, I agree, I think the visual impacts the music. They give each other meaning in, in a really interesting way. You know, you hear a character theme, and then the next time you see that character on screen, you're going to expect to hear a little bit of that theme again. And the same thing in the music, you know, that music reminds you of a very yeah. specific moment in the film. Um, and so, you... it, it, because characters have to develop, you know, I mean, otherwise there's no story. Right. You know, you have to make the music develop with them. Um, did you also uh, save the scores for Turtles 2 and 3? Did you bake those like you did the first one? Yeah, I, I mixed uh, two uh, last year, and I'm in the middle of three, so I've, I'm, I've nearly finished three. So do we think those are coming out on vinyl at some point also? Oh, yeah, Waxwork are very keen to, to come oh, out with those. Right. Uh, nice, you know, nice. I, I have to I have to kind of put it on record, you know, that, that uh, I mean, that, that Kevin Eastman uh, alluded to, to this, you know, that when you... There's, there's a big difference. I, I so wish that one... Had 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 kind of there had been three films like one. If you see what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. Um, be, apart from anything else, you know, and and it's it's very. I haven't noticed anyone mention this, by the way. Is that, um, is that it was the first rap score. It kind Up of was. That point, <laughs> there had never been a rap score. You know, it, it had never been used to score music, to score a film. You know, so. And because the album went platinum, I was absolutely thrilled. So I said, look, you know, we've kind of, you know, we've brought rap into the mainstream here. And the, the, the second film should be, we should have the, like the biggest blockbuster album of rap. We should, we should showcase all the new talent and make it, you know, that's what the, the second film should be. And it all went down in one fell swoop because the producer came in and said, I have a 12-year-old son. You know, those are the, 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 the words that everybody said. demo. <laughs> and he's heard this guy called Vanilla Ice. <laughs> there it is. And so they hired Vanilla Ice to do Turtles 2, and so the whole, that whole concept went down the tube. <laughs> and and they instead of you know I mean they, they they had fired Steve Barron so they didn't get him back to do two and they they hired TV directors for two and three yeah and they even fired Jim Henson on the third one yeah so I, I was the only only one who survived the the process of three I I was gonna mention you're you're like you're I I, I equivoc uh, sorry I. Look at you as the, you know, Desmond Llewellyn in the Bond movie was, was there as Q for all of those Bond films. You are the, the Q of the Turtles franchise. You've been there for, you know, all three. You're the only one there for all three in the 90s, except for maybe the Michelangelo voice actor. Well, like, yeah, they, oh, yeah, fired, he was they, got, they fired Corey Feldman because he had a drug conviction. Yeah. So they got rid of him. Well, that's not, you know, he's an artist. He's not mm -hmm. a kind of saint, you know. I mean, right. uh, so uh, I don't know why they got rid of him. They got rid of all the. I mean, Kevin Eastman made this point that they got rid of the. Uh, they got rid of the weapons more or less on yep. two. Yeah, yeah. we're yeah. able to talk about the, that the, now too. <laughs> even so, that the, the the music had kind of it got them a new certificate on one. I mean, so because it made the weapons funny. I mean, they were kind of, you know, like the links, the sausage links you were talking yeah, about. Right. It made they were more like that than kind Nothing of. Nothing dangerous weapons. here. La la la. <laughs> um, so there you go. So, so, so uh, I, 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 when I mixed two and I'm in the middle of three, you know, I'm, I have to say that the best music of all is in one, and, is, uh, and that there are some lo there's lovely music in two and three, and I'm trying to find the best of it and sort of feature that in the album. 
Well, you had mentioned um, uh, earlier the, the, the bonfire scene from one and how, you know, that was sort of inspired by your, your longing to see your kids and things like that. I, I, I definitely think that one has the most emotion. It, it, I think, translates probably to people. If they were to listen to the score, I think it would mean more to them not knowing the movie just because of how sort of uh, powerful the music is than, than maybe some of the stuff in two or three. Um, one is special. I think that the, the you definitely hit the nail square on the head for the first movie. I think that also that one is is kind of you know Steve sort of it has a teenage uh, uh, kind of ethic to it. Yes. Yeah. And a little more when, mature. W- w- yeah, but but two and three have a kind of uh, seven year old. I mean, they discovered that their core audience was like the seven year old child. Well, and, yeah. and Steve was even saying that he didn't know anything of the cartoon when he shot the first movie. He was basing it all off of that first comic book, which is like an underground. But by the time the sequels came along, it, the cartoon yeah. was established, and everybody was like, "I want to see the cartoon." Right. Yeah. You know, in, a, a small example from two was that when Tucker and Raza, when he's kind of wandering around the streets pulling up uh, telegraph poles, mm-hmm. you know that scene? Yeah. Um, and I wrote a song, uh, you know, it goes da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, because he says, turtles have fun, you know, he's kind of, to make it a fun thing. Right. And I wrote this this uh, song for it, which which kind of went, come on, everybody, it's happy. We're going <laughs> to have us some fun. Let's go down to the pizza joint and get us a slice with the works on. My favorite, <laughs> my favorite flavor is loaded, and because I'd been to Venice and I'd seen lo- loaded was like um, you know what you might call quattro stagione, you know, four right. seasons. Supreme. So so I put you know my favorite flavor is loaded. Ah, you know everybody froze. <laughs> loaded means drugs. Something it has drugs else over here. You know you can't say the whole song got dropped. You know I, I no. know instrumental. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, I did put the, I did mix, I did find the demo of the song, and I've and I've put it in my mix of Turtles too, so you can get nice. it. Nice. Oh, I'm feeling nice. Well, that that kind of, I guess that kind of brings us to a question we've been asking all of our guests: is uh, what's what's your favorite pizza topping? My favorite piece of what? Favorite. Oh, uh, your favorite pizza topping, or you know what? Oh, topping. My favorite yeah. pizza topping. Well, you know, it's a sad story. I can't eat pizza at all anymore. I, I mean, uh, if I, 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 I my, my my favorite is uh, if, if you want me, I I just can't. I I it, it um, I've I've been struggling with weight problems. I'm finally getting onto it. You know, I can't eat anything like pizza mm. anymore. Oh no! But my well, favorite is, is is anchovy. I have to say. And, hey! And, you know, <laughs> They, You're they, gonna they really specifically, love... they say the one thing that the turtles will not eat. I, I think I think my favorite topping is everything with anchovies. We, uh, we did a bit, you know, throughout the first season. If you get a chance to listen to the whole first season of our show, we do a bit where each of us at some point tries anchovy pizza on mm, air bacon. and reacts to it. And uh, we had very different no, I... opinions of it. <laughs> I love that salty fish taste. Oh, it's good. <laughs> uh, yes. Would you ever consider, if they asked you, there, I know there's another Turtles movie that they're talking about now. It's in pre-production with uh, with Platinum Dunes and Paramount and all that stuff. Would you ever come back and do another Turtles score? Well, I used to go to the BMI annual dinners when I was living in NA. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, I was very excited at one point, you know, when New Line bought the rights to do the Turtles. And they had the music supervisor was a very attractive Oriental lady. 
And so I went over to her table uh, because I'd been introduced before, and, and I said, I, I, I opened my coat and I patted my chest and I said, there is a special place in my heart for the turtles here. And if you ever do another turtle movie, please call me. And they didn't. <laughs> so, um, and I think that it's, uh, you know, the, the, uh, there's a lot of controversy about the, the fourth Turtle movie, you know, but, the, but if they ever, I mean, I, I mean it would, you, it, it's the director's call is the, is the simple answer. And I think if it had been the director's call on Turtles 1, I wouldn't have done it, would I? Uh, that's, that's, that would have been a crime because that music is perfect. I don't think any other music could ever fit that film. It's so uh, indelibly linked at this point. Well, the answer to your question is I would love to do it and from your lips to God's ear. Yes, we're going to push for it. I know some people at Nickelodeon. They own the Turtles now. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push for it. <laughs> Demand it. Yeah. I'm well, gonna, I, I mean, gonna, you know, listen. I mean, get Steve Barron. Can you get Steve Barron back as well? I, you know, I don't even think we asked Steve Barron if he would do another Turtles film. That would have been a good question. I messed up on that one. I should have asked him that. Uh, yeah, we got a, well, we got sure a number of answer, things we've been meaning to ask people that we've goofed on. I'm sure his. I'm sure he would love to do it. Uh, do it as long as we never actually meet. So. <laughs> Oh, don't say that. <laughs> well, I've never, I, I've yet to meet him, so I, 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 I can't, I have no idea. But it might be a condition. So I guess don't knows? mess with the formula. <laughs> um, oh gosh, this has been amazing. I want to thank you again so much for for sitting down with us and and recording with us and and telling us all these stories. This has been incredibly insightful. I am just in. I don't know, eighth heaven, he, ninth heaven. I'm Scott so far is so past, happy. So far past seventh <laughs> heaven right now. I'm afraid he's, he's I'm been talking about this. Of, I'm afraid I've given you a lot of editing to do to chop down all the rambling and get uh, it down oh, to the 30 minutes well, or whatever you need to do. But again, you, you clearly haven't listened to too many episodes of our show because that's <laughs> sort of our trademark. <laughs> also, we're kind of famous for rolling over our guests and talking over them, and, and you've, you've really held your own very well here. <laughs> well, that's because I... I <laughs> That's because um, I've got a very poor line here, so I just keep talking. That's great. Um, it's, I, 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 I have to be, you know, that, uh, what was it, 1989, uh, it, you know, that to sit in, in a kind of rainy English studio uh, in my home, talking to nice people in Philadelphia about the, 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 this, this film, I mean, it, it's, it, it boggles my mind, quite frankly, <laughs> well, um, that, that people are still interested in it and that it's still, it's still out there. You know, I have to tell you... It left a mark on us. We, we had been saying throughout our entire first season how much we loved the music, how much we wished they would release it, because at the time, there was, we had not heard anything about it coming out on vinyl. We were like, oh, they should release this. It's a crime. It's never been released. It's so good. It's so good. I wish we could talk to John Duprez. He's not on Twitter. We can't find him anywhere. We'd love to. Dupre. Dupre. Yeah, we no. say your name wrong like a hundred billion times, and I apologize. By the way, you, you, you were lucky to get me because I've never been on Twitter and I've never been on Facebook. I've never physically been on the website or I've never tweeted. I've never done any social media whatsoever. I mean, we. I was very, very lucky in that. Well, first off, the score came out. And I was like, well, we, this is clearly because we said something. This is totally our fault. It happened right after we talked about it on our show. And then someone who had worked with you at a screening uh, down in, in somewhere in the south, like Texas maybe or Florida or something, maybe it was in L.A., um, had, had reached Cody? out. 
Uh, it's Cody, I isn't it? Very possibly. I reached out to him Cody on Twitter. Cody yes. Now, he's the, guy, he's the guy who's trying to get this the uh, live-to-screen thing going. Okay. He's a lovely let guy. Me, I let went... me pull up the Twitter account here. Um, but someone had reached out to me on Twitter. I had asked It's Cody. Anyone... It's Cody Chavez. Okay. Um, it's, so he got in touch with me and was like, this is, you know, I'll give you John's email. He's a super nice guy. Um, and I was, I was just so thankful. Like I, you were the one sort of interview I wanted to get, you know, we got Kevin Eastman, we got Steve Barron, we got partners in crime who did the turtle power song on the soundtrack. That was a hell of an interview. But I was like, John Dupre is the guy. Like, he's the one I want to get. Have you got Peter Laird as well? Did he do Peter? I haven't gotten Peter. Not Peter, yet. Peter is tough to get a hold of. He's very private nowadays. He does a few Comic-Cons, mostly in the Northeast. But uh, I would love to get Peter. But I'll be honest with you, I'm much happier having you on the show. Well, <laughs> I'm working I, I, on getting I, I, vanilla I've ice. never met any of them. I've never met Kevin or Peter or Steve Barron and none of them. So oh, wow. uh, I'd, lo I'd love to do that. It would be, be a very nice um, dinner in New York one day. Well, I'll see if I can arrange that, too. <laughs> <laughs> Here yeah, I am, my little music teacher, and I'm, I'm going to set some wheels in motion now. <laughs> yeah, you can play, play bongos and we can... All that sounds beautiful. I, I, wow, I need to make that happen. I'm going to hold you to that. Um, do you All guys right. have any final questions for Mr. Dupre? No, man, you, you got it. <laughs> yeah, this has been, this has That's been right. They're lying in a darkened room, these people. They, they can't take any more. Uh, uh, pretty, I'm in a well-lit room. I'm in a well-lit room. <laughs> um, Mr. Dupre, thank you so much for being on our show. One more round of applause for Mr. John Dupre, composer of the Ninja Turtles, right. everybody. And uh, happy thank holiday. Thank you. Ah, to you too. Thank you. All right. Bye. Goodbye. Bye. How big are you smiling right now? I'm smiling so big. That was incredible. That was so good. Yeah. yeah. He learned. had a lot to say, and he, and he said it quite well. Yeah, I didn't have to do anything. <laughs> No man, yeah that that bit where he where he was like, oh maybe Rachel and Chris and Adam have something to say, and I was like, no man, I'm good. <laughs> this is amazing. You're fine. I learned so much just getting his, uh, his his background on the the process of actually recording it and the in, like what synthesizer he used. Yeah, you guys, you guys going back and forth, and you being able to like, you know, talk the music shop with it, like, and I, and you could tell that it, I think he he really dug that you uh, caught a lot of that stuff too. Uh, that was he that was good. played me one of my songs from his computer. I'm still <laughs> yeah. getting out about that. <laughs> what That's the hell? Uh, oh my god, did, did we forget anything? Is there anything we didn't get? That we uh, I don't know. We're gonna get a Turtles <laughs> I, two soundtrack. We're gonna get a Turtles three soundtrack. <laughs> I'm glad I got to share the fact that I played that song at a show I, one time. That was I, nice. I wanted to mention to him that our, I don't know if he caught it because he's listened to the show. He's heard the opening theme. I'm curious oh, if he caught that it wasn't his mix, that it was a cover. <laughs> uh, so, John, oh, that, if you're listening, oh, I'm sorry. I did a cover version of your Turtles theme to, to open up our show for season one. Uh, please don't sue us. <laughs> please don't sue us. <laughs> It's an act of love, really. And also, we make no money from this. <laughs> Speaking of, be sure to go to duelinggenre.com slash Amazon. <laughs> duelinggenre.com slash support at TMNT Minute on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, <laughs> man, all the good plugs. That was insane. Uh, I, I, I couldn't be. I'd love to get Peter Laird. Don't get me wrong. But John Duprez is, for me, being Dupre. a musician. Dupre. Oh, my God. John Dupre. I'm sorry. Um, being a musician to me, that was, this is the most sort of 
personally uh, a deep, meaningful interview in association with this film that I think I could have possibly done. This and Partners in Crime, like talking about the music is is right up my alley. Uh, so very cool for me. Yeah, you you sound happy. I'm very <laughs> happy. It's, I'm happy for you, Scott. It's twelve twenty. That's pretty good. This is almost good. a two-hour interview. Oh, I mean, maybe an hour and a half. Hour and uh, a half. It was an hour and a half. And and I have a cup of coffee that I barely got to drink because I was just so <laughs> enraptured by everything he was saying. Oh <laughs> uh, man, that was awesome. I want to get oh. him to come to New York and have dinner with me and Kevin Eastman and you guys. <laughs> that would be amazing. And that, Rich, that, that and, sounds, and that sounds impossible. Do you think we should? I think we should try to get a Turtle Minute Con going. Just a little oh, Turtle man. Minute, like e- an evening yeah, with the people we'll get, who made the we'll turtles. Get us four and Kevin Eastman and and Rich from Partners in Crime. We'll get Francois Shaw out here. Pray. <laughs> <laughs> Without being able to pay them anything. Toshishiro Obata. Toshishiro Obata. <laughs> we'll get him to smile. Ernie Reyes Jr. Yeah. I, I'm still Excuse waiting. Me, guys. I'd love to get Ernie Reyes Jr. on the show. So we'll see. All right. Well, I, I guess I can hang up now. Thank you again for listening to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Minute. This has been an amazing special episode. I'm going to listen to it hundreds of times. Chris, give us a good cowabunga to go out on. Cowabunga. <laughs> Beautiful. All right. Uh, all right.